God is good all the time. Welcome to Going Deeper. Welcome to everybody who joins us online. For those of you that might be new to this service, Going Deeper is a worship service where we just worship God unplugged, just kind of go with the flow of the Holy Spirit, and where we do verse-by-verse walks through books of the Bible. So we have been in Philippians. Tonight we're in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be starting with verse 13. Let me set this up. Due to both internal and external pressure, the church at Philippi was growing discouraged. It needed to start thinking differently. There was a time in my life when I thought the storms in life were the variables. I have absolutely reconsidered that position. I've decided the storms in life are the constants. The storms in life are the constants. How we address those storms are the variables. There was pressure on the Philippian church. They had internal issues. They had external persecution. Paul is in a Roman jail waiting capital trial. They have plenty, plenty to be discouraged about. And Paul is really going to tell them here, there's not much you can do about your circumstances, but there's a whole lot you can do about how you think. Have you ever found yourself in a bad mental emotional or spiritual place have you ever literally felt the orbit of your life decaying have you ever had a bad attitude known you were out of line know you were growing more hateful and bitter by the day know that you're in a tailspin but you can't quite figure out how to pull out of it sometimes god has to love us enough to send someone to speak truth to us, no matter how little we want to hear it, and no matter how poorly we may receive it. There's nothing humans like less than someone telling us that we are wrong when we know we are wrong. Right? (laughs) Is there anything you like less than someone telling you you have a bad attitude when you know you have a bad attitude? Lights us up! Such encounters are the work of prophets. That's what prophets do. And it explains why the line for perspective prophets is short and why prophets get invited to so few birthday parties. Nobody likes prophets. No one wants to be a prophet. We need prophets. We need prophets. We need people Sometimes in our life who love us enough to speak the truth that we do not wish to hear. Paul's remedy for the despondent Philippians is to put the things that he has already taught them into play. Every week I share with you from the scriptures and there are biblical truths that that just come out every single week, but what you do with them is, is up to you. We all know there's a huge difference between knowing what we should do or what we need to do and actually doing it. You know, we all know we should eat right and exercise, right? Everybody knows that. 
doing it. That's a different matter. We all know we need to live below our means so that we can save and give and invest financially. Doing it, that's a different matter. We all know we should spend substantial time in worship and prayer and the word. Doing it, it's a different matter. Paul reminds his readers that at the very point where our willpower fails, God is just heating up. Verse 13, for God is giving you a desire to obey him and the power to please him. Many people think the key to living a winsome, credible, and sustainable Christian life is found through a great force of will. We will ourselves to do good things, not to do bad things, to keep our promises, to be faithful to our convictions, toss in a little bad water on a well-developed Freudian superego, and bam, you got it. What most people think of is Christianity. God's role in this construct is to give us extra helpings of willpower. And as a result, we spend our entire lives in spiritual crises. Every single decision is difficult. Every single decision is difficult. And our prayer is often, God, help me be strong. If that's your prayer, you may not be giving God a lot to work with. Verse 13 goes on. And Paul's got a very different approach to this. this is a, he's got a different way to think about this. He suggests that obedience to God and power for holy living are gifts to be received not human virtues to be cultivated and divinely reinforced. The role, of God, the role of God is not to assist us in better doing what we should do. God sent Jesus to change who we are. This is the basis for the metaphor of being born again that Jesus shared with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Being born again is the complete renewing of our minds. It is putting on the mind of Christ. It's stop thinking like us and start thinking like Jesus. And this is not done by an act of willpower. This is done by the power of the resurrection. It's a new operating system entirely. Praying for the renewing of our minds, for the desire to obey God, for the power to please him is a prayer God always wants to answer. Have you ever prayed for the renewing of your mind? I think it's a credible Christian prayer. Lord, please renew my mind because my mind is stuck in the ditch of stinking thinking. Renew my mind, Lord. Lord, Give me a desire to obey you. Have you ever prayed that God would give you the desire to obey him, or do you just try harder to obey him? Let me tell you something. If you want to know the secret to spiritual failure, try harder. That'll do it. Have you ever prayed that God would give you the desire to obey him? Have you ever prayed that God would give you the power to please him? You know, we're in this 500 campaign. We got 575 people from the church inviting one new person to church every week. 
Well, you know, if we're going in the power of God, we're, we're going we're gonna to move nicely. But man, if we get to the point where we're trying to do that in our own strength, it's a recipe for failure and condemnation. I didn't make my visit this week. I fail at everything I do. Wah, 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 wah. Do you ever pray that God would give you the power? God would bring the opportunities. Paul's saying we need to pray different. We need to think different. You see, Jesus doesn't just empower us to change what we do. He supernaturally changes what we want to do. Have you ever prayed that Jesus would change what you want to do? So often we pray that God would give us the willpower to do the right thing, but we really want to do the wrong thing. It's like one of my favorite folk lyrics of all time. Gillian Welch in Miss Ohio wrote, I want to do right, but not right now. And a lot of times we, we want to do right, but not right now. A lot of times we want to do the right thing and we, Lord, help me to do the right thing. God, would you just give me an assist here so I can grab a goal? And what Paul's saying, no, 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 no. No. We need to pray that Jesus would supernaturally change what we want to do. As long as you want to do wrong and you're praying for strength to do right, you are in a losing's, a losing play. But when you begin to trust God to supernaturally change what you want to do, Christian living takes on a very, very different kind of vibe. The new Christian who, who used to desire to go drinking every night after work suddenly has that desire replaced with a desire to be the spiritual leader for his wife and his family. That backslidden Christian who has other priorities every Sunday has those priorities replaced with a desire to rearrange their schedule so they can passionately worship and serve God. That Christian who desired to build great wealth for themselves suddenly has that desire replaced with the desire to make great investments in the kingdom of God. If, if we're always trying harder to do better, we're just gonna get our proverbial butts kicked eight days a week. But if we trust Jesus to renew our minds, to change what we want to do, that is the secret. That is the key. That's what we need to pray for. We don't need to pray, Jesus, help me do better. We need to pray, Jesus, renew my mind. If your mantra is try harder, I would just suggest that you are practicing a powerless and anthrocentric, human-based gospel. And it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to the world so we could try harder to do better. He came to completely transform us. As God renews us through the work of the Holy Spirit, we find that he shifts what we want to do from things meaningless and selfish and destructive to things significant and healthy and productive. He shifts us from the temporal to the eternal, from urgent to important. Living God's way pleases God. 
And the, bypro the byproduct of living in that way is what the Bible calls divine favor. I define divine favor as the conspicuous presence of God upon a human life. We might say it's, it's living in the smile of God. The Bible speaks of people like Samuel and Daniel and David and Jesus this way. They lived in the favor of God. I don't think there's anything more winsome or beautiful or noticeable than God's favor on a life. Have you ever known people and you just sense the spirit of God upon them? My old friend Ralph Philippi used to say that some people have the gospel glow. And they do. Some people just bring the energy of the Holy Spirit with them when they walk into a room. You see, praying for favor should be on the petition list of every Christian. And yet, favor is really a byproduct of taking on the mind of Christ. As God's work enfolds in us, we will begin to see undeniable indications of its success. Because when God starts doing his work in us, God's good at what he does. He's good at what he does. As God-inspired things begin to take root in us, fleshly and fallen and worldly things are, are choked out. You might say that it's, can I use the Southern Illinois term? You might say as we get more better, we get less worse. As this happens, we find ourselves naturally living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We find ourselves naturally and effortlessly keeping the Ten Commandments. We find ourselves naturally and effortlessly being gentle and kind. We find ourselves naturally and effortlessly showing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. We find ourselves not trying to do those things, but doing them effortlessly and naturally. And as this happens, we, on one hand, we live in the favor of God, and on the other hand, we squirt less weak sauce into the eye of God. And both those things feel like wins to me. Have you ever just been in a really bad place and felt like you were on God's last nerve? You know what I mean? You just, you just feel like you're on the last nerve. And you try and you try and you try. Paul's saying to the Philippians, stop trying and let Jesus transform you. Verse 14, don't complain or argue, for they are distractions. They used to say that baseball was America's favorite pastime, but I think it's been replaced by complaining and arguing. With sports talk radio, now they complain and argue about baseball. The Greek word translated complain doesn't so much mean to personally gripe and whine kind of in a therapeutic way, but what it really means is to stir up trouble. It means to stir up trouble. Uh, the word used is not to debate for the purpose of understanding or learning. The Greeks would have considered that a good thing. It's to heckle for the purpose of disruption. It's a word biblically rooted in the desert rebellion against God 
recorded in Exodus and Numbers. A guy named Korah rose up against Moses. And there was good reason to rise up against Moses. I'm gonna be perfectly frank with you. For example, they all followed Moses out of Egypt. Where were they going? To the promised land. Does anybody know which direction the promised land is from Egypt? Huh? North, east. Do you wanna know what direction Moses headed? South. You've been in the car with somebody driving and you said, you're going the wrong way. And it really gets annoying when you're going the wrong way. Moses was not taking the geometric path to the promised land. He was following God's instruction. And Korah rose up against him. He, he orchestrated a rebellion against Moses. And, and if you know the story, they have a confrontation and the Bible says the desert opened up and swallowed Korah and his followers and all their possessions. The end. <laughs> Go on. Paul's message is clear. Philippian church, you have enough problems coming at you from the outside. Don't let foolish people add to them by stirring up trouble on the inside. Paul's telling the Christians who are making trouble inside the Philippian church to cut it out before they force God to cut them out. Over the years, I've had several conversations with people who were causing dissension. As I like to say, people shooting cannonballs below the waterline of the ship we're on. And my message is always, if, if there's substance to your concerns, let's deal with them. But if this is just personal preference and you make it in trouble, you need to cease and desist. The account of Korah reminds us that God will not long tolerate internal threats to the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. But now we're going to have a little shift in the text. Many churches have died, not because the leadership didn't feed the sheep, but because the leadership didn't have the courage to drive off the wolves. And sometimes we have to drive off the wolf that lives in us. There's an old proverb that within each of us, there are two dogs. One is good and one is evil, and they're constantly fighting. A master was once asked, which dog wins? And he responded, the one I feed the most. I think we all have to be aware of the wolf inside of us. So Paul says, instead of complaining and arguing, let me give you some different stuff to do. So let's take a look at what he says. He says that we need to live purely, live innocently, let your light shine, and rejoice. Does anybody see how this is better than whining and arguing and being a troublemaker? Right? The, the, being a troublemaker is, is over here. But these are all really winsome things. So let's unpack them. Verse 15, rather, than, rather, instead of that, instead of feeding your wolf, live pure and innocent lives in this dark world and let your light 
shine brightly. I have some very direct questions that I love to ask chronic whiners and complainers. Chronic whiners and complainers, uh, it's sort of like this. You know, I think it was Thoreau that said, you know, I think, therefore I am. And I think people today, it's sort of like, I'm outraged, therefore I am. But for some people, it's I complain, therefore I am. It's how they exert their personhood and their individuality by complaining. And you won't believe this, but some people complain to me about stuff. (laughs) Once. And so I'll ask them. I'll say, you know what? Tell me what's your concerns, and they'll tell me what their concerns. And if if they're substantive, we'll, we'll try to address them, right? We don't do everything perfectly around here. But you'd be surprised how often they're not substantive. They're personal preference issues. Or they're things that they're just frustrated about. Or they have nothing to do with the church whatsoever. And they're always complaining about other people. They did this and they did that. And so I just had this series of questions I asked them. Here's question number one. How many people have you led to Christ this year? Isn't that a fair Christian question? Right? I mean, obviously you have lots of energy. Right? Obviously you got a lot of passion. How many people have you led to Christ this year? Who are you mentoring and discipling right now? Who's mentoring and discipling you right now? What are you getting out of the word right now? How's God speaking to you right now? Where are you making major investments of your time and resources into the kingdom of God right now? What's exciting you about what God's doing in your life? If I may quote my wife, Melissa, who I've heard say this a thousand times, is it kingdom or is it crap? The answers are generally none, none, nowhere, and crap. And sometimes we have to look inside our own hearts because I think we all have to somewhat self-regulate. And sometimes I look inside my heart and I don't, you ever say something and you think, man, where'd that come from? You ever feel something and you thought, eh, you know, I don't want to feel this way. You ever think something and you think, I don't want to think that way. Paul's just saying, let's, let's just self-monitor here. But he's also saying when people can't self-monitor, you can't let them be in control of things. You can't let the gripers and the whiners control things. If you think you're depressed now, you wait till they get control. When I was young, right out of college, I was a baseball coach. Uh, at, in a school in uh, Louisville, Illinois. And I was a baseball coach, and we were at a, at a ball game, and we were playing, obviously. And the umpire was not the best in the whole world, but I never got too upset. I never expected a, a junior high umpire to get every single call right. I, I just never felt it was a reasonable expectation, so I just never got very upset. But boy, do fans get upset. And so this one fan was in the back. He's just chipping at the umpire the whole time, right? He's just, just chipping at him. Finally, the umpire took his mask off. I mean, this is like in 1985, right? Umpire took his mask off. He looks at the guy and he goes, if you think you know so much about umpiring, you come an umpire. 
And I walked up to him. I said, no, 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 this guy's an idiot. I don't want him umpiring. You go ahead and just keep doing it, man. Last thing I want is the worst behaved person here to be the person that's in control of things. And that's really what Paul's saying. Don't let the worst behaved people be in control of things. But he's also saying, don't let your worser angels within you control your life either. I noticed a long time ago, the people who are rocking the boat are just never the people who are rowing it. And you wanna know why? Because people only have so much energy. <laughs> they only have so much energy. So here's what he says that we need. Number one, purity. Purity in the New Testament not only has to do with the substance of a thing, but the literal definition in Greek, it's really more about the absence of contaminants. You guys remember the soap? Anybody else really old that was 99.9% .9 pure? What was it? Was it ivory? Yeah. Ivory soap. They used to have a commercial. It was 99.9% .9 pure. Guess what that would be called in the New Testament? Impure. If there's any impurities, it's impure. So it's the absence of contaminants. So when Jesus said that we are the pure salt of the earth, followed by a warning that when salt becomes contaminated, it's worthless, what he's really saying is, is we've got to watch that the contaminants from this world don't ruin our witness, don't take us into a bad place. We have to keep the contaminants out. When the Bible commands us to be in the world but not of the world, it's a matter of purity. Since Satan knows he can't destroy or ultimately defeat the church of Jesus Christ, that's already determined the strategy of evil often turns to one of containment and of stirring discord jesus told a parable about a sabotaged wheat field Do you remember the story it illustrates this perfect where an enemy of the owner sowed weeds in a wheat field and once that happened there was little to do but wait until harvest time and then sort it all out with great labor the axiom that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure really applies brilliantly here. Jesus is saying, you're far better off if you can keep the weeds out from the get-go because once the weeds get in, you got a bit of a mess. And I just want to tell you, in our Christian lives, we need to live as pure lives as we possibly can. We need to keep the contaminants out. You say, man, I just got a lot of bad things flying around in my head okay but what are you watching on television what are you absorbing in entertainment what are you reading what are you dabbling is there any chance it has something to do with these things that are afflicting you right now remember which dog wins the one you feed so we're really like computers if you put good stuff in, you're gonna get pretty good stuff out. But if you put bad stuff in, you're gonna get bad stuff out. And Paul is saying to the church, watch what goes into your head. Watch what goes into your heart. Pay attention to what's happening inside of you. Self-monitor. And he's also saying to the church, monitor the church. Make sure the contaminants don't get in. You see, when we are swirling, when we can't get our footing, 
when we know we're in a bad place, when we know we're in a tailspin, but we can't seem to pull out of it. This text reminds us, don't add to your problems. Don't add to your problems by putting impure thoughts and actions into your life. I am shocked today by how much of what the world deems to be entertainment is utterly demonic. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, that has no place in the home, in the heart, or in the head of a Christian person. Because you're just inviting Satan and all the crappy stuff Satan does into your home, into your head, into your heart. Why would you do that? Particularly if you're already kind of doing a swirly. Why would you do that? Purity. Purity. Maintaining purity by warring against things that contaminate is always the way to go. I am always guarding the mission of this church. Always. I love feeding sheep. I love teaching on Wednesday nights. Church discipline isn't nearly as fun. But I learned something a long time ago. You don't take care of the wolves for pretty soon you won't have any living sheep left to feed. It's just part of it. And we also have to take care of those things internally in our own lives as well. Number two is, is that we're to pursue innocence. In the strictest sense, being innocent means to be not guilty. <laughs> That's really the definition of it. It has to do with actions, but it also has to do with motives. Living innocently means to keep the sin and impurity that lurks within each of us under the submission of Christ. When a baseball pitcher loses control, it's often because muscle, memory, and mechanics have broken down. Now, pitchers will sometimes start releasing the ball in the wrong position. And when they do, nothing good is going to happen. They'll lose their location. Uh, they may throw ball after ball, or worse yet, they may just throw the ball right down the middle of the plate where anybody can head it. Good coaches will often say to a pitcher, stay on top of the ball. Stay on top of the ball. That, that means to keep your hand in position to control the release point and the flight of the ball. Don't let the ball go here. Let the ball go here. Stay on top of the ball. A bad pitch is made long before the ball leaves your hand. Living innocently is spiritually staying on top of the ball. And I believe this happens most effectively at the thought and at the impulse level. If we give Jesus complete control of our lives, if we download his operating system, uh, most sin is shut down before it even begins. Melissa loves to garden, and she loves to, to do that kind of thing. And I noticed something a long time ago. If there is a little weed in the garden, this is what you gotta do to get rid of it. Piece of cake. You let that thing grow for two months, it'll pull half your garden out when you pull it out. 
Those roots get big. They start entangling with all the stuff you want in there. And before long, you've got a big mess. It's the same with sin in our lives. If we pay attention to what's going on inside of us, we can hit those weeds early. Hit those weeds at the impulse level. You know, hit those weeds early. If we let them grow and grow and water and miracle grow them, and all of a sudden those impulses turn to sinful actions, and then when sinful actions get out there, all of a sudden life gets really, really complicated. Complicated. The key to holy, innocent living is in the impulse level. It's at the thought level. It's choosing not to dwell on those thoughts. And when those bad thoughts come to your mind, realize that's not a sin to have a bad thought. You have no control over that. But what you do with that thought determines everything. And when those bad thoughts come up, you just need to say, Jesus, will you just come take care of this? And he'll say, I'd be happy to. If we can control ourselves at the thought and the impulse level, stuff will never get to the point that we are displaying unhealthy action. And then thirdly, he says to let our light shine. The prophet Daniel wrote in 12.3, those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. Gets back to the old gospel glow. People united in darkness whine. People united in mission shine. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is a reality that's utterly contrary to the values of this world. You become rich by giving, great by serving, you live by dying. I think the church today must be a countercultural community. Because if we embrace the values and morality and attitudes and lifestyles of the larger culture, we're going to have nothing to offer the world but another club, organization, or charity. The more Christ-like, loving, and positive, and giving that we become, the more of those things we display in our lives, the more of God's light is going to shine to the world. I believe it's only a pure and innocent church that can truly shine light to the world. And a pure and innocent church involves two things people in the church who are committed to purity and innocence and leadership that drives off the wolves. You gotta have both those things. We must individually and collectively live so above reproach that even when the enemy attacks with lies of the devil, and the enemy will, no one will believe a thing he has to say. And the fourth thing we're to do is rejoice. Verse 17 and 18. Even if I am poured out for you, I will rejoice that you should rejoice with me. I find that life is often a matter of hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Paul hopes to live and continue in ministry, but even if he doesn't, and in this case he won't, he will rejoice in the goodness of God. A libation offering was one of the most common forms of ancient worship. The idea was really simple. You stood before an altar, and they poured wine from a sacred goblet of some fashion before the deity. Europeans, Jews, Romans, all would have seen this a thousand times. Paul uses the metaphor to suggest that his life force is the wine, and, it, and should it be poured out to complete the good work that God has begun in Philippi, he'll rejoice. If continuing God's work costs him his life, he will rejoice. 
Any of you who have ever served to the point of exhaustion and burnout know something of pouring out your life for others. If you've ever prayed until the words turned to groaning, if you've ever worshiped until you felt emotionally depleted, if you've ever given until you have nothing left to give, then you know something of what Paul speaks. Paul's been used up, depleted, poured out for Jesus. And his life, and if his life is required to continue the mission of Jesus Christ, he will offer it gladly. And the Philippian church should rejoice with him. So let's close with a metaphor. Human beings are essentially water bottles. Isn't that charming? We're essentially water bottles. You and I are roughly 80% water. Our skin is the bottle, and we all leak. If our water level is not kept up, we die. I spent some time on this. Uh, humans can live about five or six days without water. I mean, it can kind of come and go a little bit, but you can't live very long without water. So I want you to think of Christian service as sweat, water going out, and worship has hydration, water coming in. The more you sweat, the more water you need to drink to replace the water you have lost. It's a wonderful thing to be poured out for Christ, but without regular worship and study and prayer, you will get spiritually dehydrated. And some of you had times in your life that you were serving God in very significant ways, but you were suffering from spiritual dehydration. And what you find is, before long, you just won't have anything left to give. You just got nothing left to give. And if that's the case, your spiritual legacy will be one of high speeds followed by crashes and burns. The healthy Christian is gonna be in a process of being filled by God, emptying themselves out in service, and then being filled by God again. And if I were to give directions for healthy, sustainable Christian living, it would simply be worship, serve, repeat. If you just serve and serve and serve, it's like somebody that exercises and exercises and exercises and they don't eat. You get one set of problems. On the other hand, if you eat and eat and eat and don't exercise, you get a different set of problems. The key is to spiritually maintain ourselves. To spiritually maintain ourselves. We eat as we worship, as we pray, as we study. God pours into us. We work out as we get about God's work in this world, roll up our sleeves in the name of Jesus. And we have to find healthy ways to sustain all of that. Paul concludes his thoughts with a singular idea. No matter what is going on in your life, rejoice. Rejoice. Melissa and I we're at Sightman Cancer Center today. Those of you that don't know me, Melissa, my wife, has been fighting cancer uh, for a while now. It was diagnosed in the late summer of last year. We've gone through chemo and, and surgery, radiation now. We were three months past the last radiation, and today was the day that we went to get the results of those tests, that they see if the cancer's come back. One of the things we talked about is that no matter what those results were, we were gonna rejoice. We were gonna rejoice in the goodness of God. And we were gonna rejoice 
that throughout this difficult journey, God has never forsaken or abandoned us. And we were going to rejoice that we are closer to each other and God as a result of this difficult journey than we ever would have been otherwise. And if God is gracious and answers our prayers, we're going to give him all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And if we don't get the news that we hoped for, we're going to give him all the honor and all the praise and all of the glory. We got really good news today. We got really good news today. And what I want to share with you is thank you for your prayers. Thank you for lifting us up. Jesus, thank you for answering our prayers in that way. We want to give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And if you're tempted to say God is good, yes, he is. But I want you to understand, even if the news wouldn't have been good, God is still good. He is still good. He is still faithful. He is still true. And that is what Paul is telling the Philippians. Even when life is bad, God is still good. Rejoice. Rejoice in the good news. Rejoice in the bad news. Rejoice. Paul does not rejoice because he is confident of the positive outcome of his trial. He's not rejoicing because things are going so well in Philippi. He rejoices because he's certain that the God who began the good work in Philippi 10 years prior will bring it to completion. He rejoices because even if he is executed tomorrow, he knows that he is being faithful to Jesus today. For Paul, if God's good work is being accomplished, things are good regardless of his personal circumstances. And it's true for us as well. The question is never how shall we die? We're all going to die, and I'm sorry if you had to hear it here first. The only question that we have to answer is, how shall we live? And I'm going to live like Joshua. I want to be able to look at life with all of its good and all of its bad, with all of its risks and all of its rewards, with all of its victory and all of its challenges. I want to look at life and square up my jaw And so no matter what comes, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When we get to that place in our lives, we will begin to live in victory because we have adopted the mind of Christ.